This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Julie from A Good Story is Hard to Find. Hi, I'm Seth. Hi, I'm Misa. And we're going to talk about book two of... Oh, three. sorry, book three. Three. Uh, uh, uh. From <laughs> The Lord of the Rings, um, which is in the first half of The Two Towers. And on the Wikipedia entry, they've titled it The Treason of Isengard. That collection or that section of this. Um, one of the things I noted on the Wikipedia entry for The Two Towers is that um, it was because of paper shortages that this was published in three volumes <laughs> instead of six volumes. I don't know if that's right. legit, really? but I think I would prefer six volumes. I, I, I like slim volumes, you know, myself. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I, I'm racing through books faster when the volumes are thinner. You get the triumph of finishing it. Huh. I mean, the the thing is, is, you know, Lord of the Rings is a thick book. Now, not thick compared to uh, modern books, but I guess oh they gosh. had thicker books back then as well. But I, I, I just like looking at half of, a co- you know, I've got a paper copy in hand here and looking at the, it's like, yeah, that's actually a very nice thin volume, you know, 250 pages or so. Right. right. And that's, that's would fit even better in my pocket. Yeah. They had Anne Rand <laughs> books back then. Yeah. Well, not all of hers are that long. No, just- Anthem is short. Anthem is great. Yeah. But yeah, I've been I, reading Dickens, so I hear you. Oh boy, yeah. But but like I have a small version of The Hobbit, which when the I can't remember what was happening, the movie was coming out. It was an anniversary, and it's a tiny, leather bound. It's maybe like four by six or three by five. Or, I mean, it's really it's maybe not three by five, but it's really small. And I love those little books. They fit mm. in a purse. They're light, and people will say. Well, everybody's getting older, and I'm thinking, you know, I have glasses. I've had glasses since fourth grade. This is not a problem for me. I can carry a magnifying glass if I had to. And there's a whole section of or a collection of books called the Collector's Library, and they'll put out classes like Uncle Tom's Cabin or things like that in that small size also, and I'll always go for those. It's I like, like the small ones. It's like Gideon Bible size. We can We should get like a Lord of the Rings in every hotel room. Well, then you're, it's like Alice in Wonderland reading. You've got these teeny little books, and you're the giant queen reading. Ooh, I like it. Great. The huge eye looking over everything. I am Sauron reading the world. Am I flaming yet or not? Sauron. <laughs> this is also the of the three volumes that we've thinnest volume. I, I think Return of the King might be a little bit over thick in our estimation because of the appendices. Yeah, it's hard there. to tell. I think Fellowship is probably at least as big, uh, but Return of the King's the biggest. This is the thinnest. Um, it seemed to fly by, even though I started late. Did you guys find that it the action flew by pretty fast? Yeah, yeah. And, and as a first-time reader of these things, I appreciated that. <laughs> I, I was reading the Wikipedia entry again, and Anthony Boucher's review, which came out in I guess the fifties when whenever this was coming out, he said that it was. Um, he had a couple of things to say that I thought was funny. He says it makes inordinate demands upon the patience of its readers. Um, well, we haven't got to the second half of this thing yet, but 
Um, and then he says, um, lar- many passages could be lopped away without affecting former content. I'm like, no, actually, I, I was rereading some of these lines. And I'm like, no, I don't want to. I want to keep that. Yeah. Yeah. No. What he said? No, wrong. Yeah. But he also, you know, said lots of good things. We, you know, I found that it was it was so dense. There was so much mm-hmm. that I I couldn't like. I don't know how you can read it once and get it. I, I, I it helped so much, like listening to the um the radio play, mm-hmm. and then even after I, I I was listening to part of it uh, as an audiobook, and every time I was hearing more. Mm-hmm. Like the first time, I was almost overwhelming because there's so much back history and and like you keep going further back and back and back like you know like the the world just keeps expanding and it's confusing and maybe he meant like it was just you know the, in in that way i think it's it's unlike i mean there wasn't that many fantasy novels prior to to this so um compared to most of those that were you know relatively light i think that uh, it might have <laughs> it does make inordinate demands upon the reader it, it does um, but not the not patience, in a bad way not but... the patience of the reader unless you're you know r- reading for review is far different than reading mm-hmm. for pleasure mm-hmm. um i've written a lot of reviews i don't write very many reviews anymore um and part of that is because as a reviewer you're looking for things to criticize or not necessarily criticize, but even to praise. And you, right, discuss. Yeah, well, yeah, to have something to write about, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a different experience sometimes. Now, I think reading as a reviewer actually can help you also read because I don't have patience for a lot of books <laughs> because they are badly written that could have lots of things lopped away. Um, I think the vouchers, you, you know, heaping upon this, not that it's, he, it's, you know, that he's making is legit. It's just not legit for this particular book. Right. He's talking about the kind of book he wants to see, which is on for action versus what he was presented with. This is, this is a I very think. rich text. And yeah, I, I got to the end of this book. I had to put it on double time right at the end. I was, <laughs> I was being very hasty. How terrible. <laughs> I was going in shadow fact. Shadow fact speed. Yeah. And then right, <laughs> right as I was closing in on the end here, um, I, it, it just leapt to the end. And oh, that's the end. And I, I missed what happened. So I went to the text, and I just I want to savor this. This is the very last, uh, well, two paragraphs and a bit of the of the book that we've just finished reading. So it says, um, this, and it's just so beautiful. Listen to this. Now we are come to the lands where you are fold, uh, and every stone you know now. Hope is in speed. And he's talking to Shadowfax. And then Shadowfax Shadowfax tossed his head and cried aloud as if a trumpet had summoned him to battle. Then he sprang forward. Fire flew from his feet. What a beautiful line. Night rushed over him. As he fell slowly into sleep, Pippin had a strange feeling. He and Gandalf were still as stone, seated upon the statue of a running horse, while the world rolled away beneath his feet with a great noise of wind. 
like, wow, that is poetry, mm-hmm. right? Yep. That's so much mm-hmm. of the book was poetry like that. How many times did you stop and go, oh my god, that was beautiful? Yeah, there's a lot of yes, there's a lot of and, and alliteration the- in it because mm-hmm. um, well, Rohan is based off of Anglo-Saxon culture mostly, and Anglo-Saxons used a lot of alliteration in their poetry, kind of short, short half lines, kind of like Treebeard's. Um, Treebeard's list of all the all the beings in the world <laughs> mm-hmm. very kind of mm-hmm. Anglo-Saxon riddle style. I love it. I I, well, I think you know I because I made a list of all the things, all the descriptions I loved, and I thought, yeah, you know, the first time through when you're reading it, it's like you're saying, Misa, you're reading it and you're kind of hanging on by the skin of your teeth, just going, here's the adventure, here's the big stuff. I'm trying to keep mm-hmm. track of. Who are these different orcs? What Sauron and Saruman? What? I, the names? I'm confused, you know. But when you go back through and start slowing down, it's like watching a complex movie more than one time. Mm-hmm. And um, you come across all these descriptions that, in fact, this is one I just noticed, and I, I would like to read this, where it's talking about the grass of Rohan. And I was like, I don't even remember this. And it says at the bottom, They came with a sudden strangeness on the grass of Rohan. It swelled like a green sea up to the very foot of the Emin Mool. The falling stream vanished into a deep growth of cresses and water plants, and they could hear it tinkling away in green tunnels down long, gentle slopes toward the fens of Entwash Vale far away. They seemed to have left winter clinging to the hills behind. Here the air was softer and warmer and faintly scented as if spring was already stirring and the sap was flowing again in herb and leaf. Legolas took a deep breath like one that drinks in a great draft after long thirst in barren places. Ah, the green smell, he said. It is better than much sleep. Let us run. <laughs> and it just, it, it's a whole scene change where you think of... The plains of Rohan is where, oh, yeah, they're raising horses and they're very Anglo-Saxonish. And, of course, part of that is informed by, you know, what I saw in the Lord of the Rings movie. But this is kind of, it's, here we are, and this has an enchantment of its own. Okay, I found a beautiful, I wrote down a beautiful one, too. Um, Day leaped into the sky. The red rim of the sun rose over the shoulders of the dark land. Before them in the west, the world lay still, formless and gray. But even as they looked, the shadows of night melted. The colors of the waking earth returned. Beautiful. Yes. So much. Well, it's and when just, you... Oh, I'm sorry. I was no, gonna I was say, just going to say, it's just so much. And there's even more that you didn't read. And, you know, you get to Gimli talking about the beauty he found in the caves. Mm. Oh, God. Oh, and beautiful. That's like a, almost a page when you add it up. But what would you cut out? evocative you're there so mm-hmm. i think boucher is that his, how you say his name he wanted a different book well he he you know i just read the you know the critical part of what he said but right i'm just saying um so what c.s lewis think, said you have to be careful yeah. that you're not critiquing what you would like to see but you're critiquing what is there I, in a book i think it could be lopped away it just would lose a lot i mean the, the <laughs> thing is is no no, I, I, Julie, I think this is a really important distinction because I, so many people read The Lord of the Rings and then they become writers and then they write The Lord of the Rings, except they don't have half, a quarter, a tenth, uh, mm-hmm. a fiftieth of the skill mm-hmm. of uh, J.R.R. Tolkien or, you know, the, the depth of reading and love of ancient literature that is, you know, coming forth in this book. So that those little details that, you know, we're calling up, 
when you go and try and find those, you know, the illegitimate heirs of Tolkien, <laughs> you find uh, that they aren't there. And that that is because it's just, it's, they just don't have anything like it. They want it. They want to have those feelings, those uh, images, but it's just not there. And uh, I mean, I just, you know, as Seth is saying, you know, the, the, uh, the Anglo-Saxon sort of stuff, uh, well, just all the names, uh, keeping track of all the names of the landscape and oh. all the people. Um, I'm not too good at all. Like keeping track of the deep, the deep, uh, okay, this guy's, this guy's daughter-in-law and that, you know, yeah. his ancestor <laughs> is, you know, the door word of else's stepson or whatever. I'm not too great at that, but um, the beautiful language that, that comes out when they're visiting. and um, Again, I'm not a big character guy, but when we do meet these characters, um, they're all sort of Tolkien in a certain sense. They love nature, pretty much all of them. Um, but I even had fun, you know, hanging out with the orcs. I thought the orcs were pretty mm-hmm. fun in this. The orcs were, they surprised me so much. Because in the movie, they just seem like, you know, these big, huge bad guys. But they're like um, comic relief, almost. Yeah. I mean, that, yeah, they're bad. Also so goofy and bumbling, like, really surprised me. Hmm. Well, some of them are. And some well, of, them, some are. of them are the way that they say jostling, cursing, like the, the way that they spoke really. Yeah, they're I mean, they're murderers and really scary and everything, but they're also goofy. Their language well, is thought, goofy, yeah. Yeah, I thought it was an interesting distinction, though, is that you had when they stop and say who they are. And so you have Saruman's and Sauron's orcs, but you also have some that have come from the mines of Moria. Mm-hmm. looking for these hobbits and they've joined up with these guys and those are the ones who were treated like the country cousins they didn't Maybe really know what it. to do they couldn't be out in the daylight they're the ones who a bunch <laughs> of them ran off to the woods and when they came back there were only three left so <laughs> you know kind of yeah he gave them all different personalities and goals and um in fact in that i saw we we would have talked before about the doubling and the contrast that mm. that he does and i thought that's funny. You have, I think it was three sets of different orcs. So they're all the same sort of a creature. And those are contrasted at the same time as you have the man, the elf, and the dwarf mm-hmm. all working together mm-hmm. to try to find what the orcs are supposed to be running away with. Yeah. And yeah. I thought, oh, here you have the evil can't work because they don't have a common goal. Exactly. They're very suspicious and hate each other. And you have the good that is like, we'll just let the differences between us go, as you, especially as you watch Legolas and Gimli working through their differences. Exactly. That's a, that seems to be a theme through this whole book with the uh, orcs and also with um, Saruman and Sauron at the end. It's yes. Evil, by its, by its definition, is not cohesive because it's, it's self-centered. It's right. like Saruman's robe where he's refracting white into mm-hmm. many colors. That's evil. It's continually refracting into those many colors, so they're not one cohesive thing, and they're working against each other, I think. I've got a passage here of the orcs talking. It's fun stuff. Um, This is uh, in the chapter called the Urukai. At that moment, Pippin saw why some of the troop had been pointing eastward. From that direction, there now came hoarse cries, and there was Grishnak again, and 
his back a couple of score of others like him, long-armed, crooked-legged orcs. They had a red eye painted on their shields. Ugluk stepped forward to meet them. So you've come back, he said. Thought better of it, eh? I've returned to see that the orders are carried out and the prisoners are safe, Grish- answered Grishnak. Indeed, said Ugluk. Waste of effort. I'll see that orders are carried out in my command. And what else did you come back for? You went in a hurry. Did you leave anything behind? I left a fool, snarled Grishnak. <laughs> but there were some stout fellows with him, and that that are too good to lose. I knew you'd lead them into a mess. I've come to help them. Splendid, laughed Ugluk. But unless you've got some guts for fighting, you've taken the wrong way. Lugberg's was your road. The white skins are coming. I, I oh, who are the white skins? That's question. The Rohirrim. Yeah. 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 Right. Are coming. What happened to your precious Nazgul? Has he bought another mount? Has he shot? Has he got another mount shot out under him? <laughs> now, if you brought him along, that might have been useful. If these Nazguls are all they make out. Nazgul, Nazgul, said Grishnak, shivering and licking his lips as if the word had a foul taste and savored that he savored painfully. You speak of what is deep beyond the reach of your muddy dreams, Ugluk. Just great little, you know, yeah, sniping at each other prior to Mm. another fight over who's going to get these hobbits and tear them off, tear them apart and take them to their master. (laughs) If only, if only we could. (laughs) Yeah, uh, it's funny that they didn't try and split them up, right? One take one and one take the other. Well, that would have required some serious cooperation. Yeah, I don't think that would have occurred to them. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, one of the other, I mean, the, something I want to go back to. Uh, we we started in, but uh, there, there's one thing that I think you know. There, there's tons of doubling in here, um, mm-hmm. as we've seen. You know, Saruman and and. Uh, I had a little exchange with Misa about who who that guy was in the forest with a hat, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah. still not convinced that it is uh it was Saruman and I'm not convinced that it was uh Gandalf, but then again, it's the text seems pretty clear. I'm just not convinced. <laughs> I don't know. Um but of the well, of they all they kind of leave it up in the air, I guess, yeah. don't they? Yeah, they do. They do. Um but it's, you know, it's yeah it's it's a little unclear one of the things that um is comes up again and again and i think it starts right right with the end of uh of the last book and the beginning of this one and it goes right to the end of this is all the liquid all the all the drinking um hmm. pippin and mary are given um uh orc drink that is like a drug that makes that it's like uh i don't know it's full of it's like amphetamines. Or, yeah, amph- yeah. No, it's not. It's the opposite of morphine. Right. Morphine knocks you down, right? This gave them energy. I assumed that it was some sort of alcohol, you know, like whiskey or something, orc whiskey. Mm-hmm. Um, but that that's not exactly right either. But they got that's a lot of a- energy from this. This in the same way that they lembasses, you know, it's, it's laced with uh, amphetamines too. I think. Well, also, didn't uh, wasn't there and like an elf liquid or liquor or some sort that Gandalf would give him a couple of mouthfuls when they were in the mines of Moria, and he'd say, "I have to save it, but we need the energy right now." Yeah, that mirror mm. is called, I thought yeah. this was like 
Yeah, I thought this was like the orc version since mm-hmm. they're a corruption of the elves. I just thought. Yeah, you know, it didn't taste good going down. That makes sense. That's the yeah. difference, right? Um, Mary and Pippin also get uh, a, the ent drafts, right? Which, mm-hmm. which make them uh, <laughs> green of leaf and <laughs> yeah. taller. Their uh, hair's curlier. Yeah. Yes. And it makes them very uh, full of energy as well. They 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 still want to have a a hearty meal, but their you know their hunger is satisfied somewhat uh, by those those green drinks. <laughs> um, but that's not that's not the only waters. There's also the waters that swallow Boromir, right? As he goes mm-hmm. over the waterfall, I guess is is where he's going to go, isn't he? Yeah. Are you going forward? I'm going forward and backwards. Um, and then, of course, at the end of this book, we've got the flotsam and jetsam that's right. drown the, yeah. the the waters that drown the Orthanc. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think there was even more. I I think there was, a, yeah, didn't Gimli and Legolas and them have a drink somewhere along the way as well? Well, and doesn't Theoden, don't they all have a drink after he's restored to himself? Sounds I mean, right. Yeah, I mean, surely. I think there's a lot of drinking going on. Just compared to, I think there's a lot more eating in the first uh, volume, the first two books. It's more hobbitish there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. This is more like the drinking lands. It's it's more Viking. I always think of the Rohirrims as like Vikings without ships. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Which they, would go with the Anglo-Saxon thing. You've got this sort yeah. of the meat hall, sort of uh, you know. Theoden's Hall is is much more of a mead hall than it's more um it's it it, it reminds me of um the hall of in Beowulf, you know. It's, right. It's like that shape. Well their language is basically basically old English I and mean, Holbitla, which is what they call the hobbits, is you know, hold dwellers. Mm-hmm. Um there's a guy um when they're riding to Helm's Deep, they meet a guy named Charl, C E O R L, and it's basically an old English word word for guy or dude. Mm-hmm. Running out of names, I guess. It's like, ah, call him dude. Be an inside joke for my Anglo-Saxon readers. Yeah, Carl. Carl is is that meaning, right? That's, and didn't yeah. you say that Theoden means king? I mean, it's they a all for- they all mean king. At least according to um, you, get that list of all the dead kings of of Rohan. Anglo-Saxons loved synonyms and what they called kennings. Like um, Beowulf is a kenning. Beowulf is a kenning for mm-hmm. bear. Or, Whale Road would be okay. a kenning, kenning for um, the ocean. So they love plays on words and, and ways of saying something without actually saying it. So I think all the names of the kings of Rohan actually mean king. Mm-hmm. That's pretty cool. And I also love that they would all the time call him Theoden King. Not King Theoden, but Theoden King. <laughs> yeah. Somehow that just, it had a resonance. Well, it's their way of talking like. too, right? He calls uh, Eowyn sister daughter. Right. <laughs> it's not, you know, my yeah. niece. Niece. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's a, that doesn't sound very Anglo-Saxon. Niece. Well, and it's an interesting family dynamic because it's his son is dead. Theoden's son is dead. So you've got his nephew and his niece, basically. And um, I like the fact that they still support him as king, even though he's old and wretched and turned aside by Grimma from thinking properly. And then they're obviously going to be the next set of rulers, but they're just like his strong right arm, both of them. Mm-hmm. And that's what they both want to be, really. Um, I don't think that comes out so much about Eowyn in this one as it does. No, it's coming later, I think. Next, but later. But I, but I also loved that the people recognize that because the minute he comes out and says, 
you know, I, I need my sword. And they're all like, yes, let's <laughs> yeah. kneel and declare. Finally. Allegiance. Yeah. And then when he says, well, who can I leave to take care of the people? And one of the guys is like, uh, your sister daughter. Hello. Mm-hmm. <laughs> She's noble, too. And he's like, oh, I just never thought of you that way. You're right. She's great. So I just, that family dynamic is just, uh, it was kind of a ruling family, but one that was of the people in a sense, while still being noble. I don't know. So underpopulated. I, I mean, this one I notice now in reading it so many times again, it's the, the universe of, of these lands is like, there's so few, maybe 100,000 people in all of Middle Earth, it and seems like including them. every dwarf and goblin, you know? Like they're they're in one area, and Gimli asks everyone, "Well, who lives in these hills?" And he's like, "No one. <laughs> it's just empty. Uh, it's hard to imagine in in our world today. I and mean, maybe there are some empty spots, but very few." Yeah. Do you think that was kind of like it must have felt when the Romans had withdrawn from Britain and they were on their own and in decline in a lot of ways and having to fight the invaders? I wonder. That's kind of what it makes me think of. You know, it comes back, but there are times when lands just aren't populated very much people move around and i think that fits I, i've heard gondor at its height compared to rome and and now it's on the decline i don't personally really okay. see gondor as rome but i i guess i get yeah. that but um but in terms of the dynamic yeah it seems and also in terms of the way tolkien works he loves he loves this idea of decline i mean middle earth is declining just just like roman empire or insert any other great empire mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A time of transition. Yeah. And this is kind of like everybody's, but they still have to live during this time of transition. They're not reading history. They're in it. Right. There's a, a show by Dan Carlin just wrapped up. I don't know how many of you folks are listening to his blueprint for Armageddon show, which is the, uh, you know, f- mm-hmm. 24 hour show on, on, uh, <laughs> World War One. Oh wow! It was so long. I couldn't listen to it. I love Dan Carlin, but it's really wonderful. Yeah. Um, the, in the last section, he's just finished it. Um, you know, end of nineteen seventeen, nineteen eighteen, and um, he talks actually quite a lot about Lord of the Rings, which is funny because you know, it's not really directly related to what's going on. Well, now oh, you're going to make me listen to it. Fine. <laughs> <so>. not, yeah. <laughs> It's not, uh, you know, playing a huge role in World War One. However, he, you know, he points out in that that in the Lord of the Rings there is this sense of of what happens when you send your soldiers off to war and just so many of them people are killed that the empires are in, as you say, you know, collapse. Uh, the ending of of great empires, the decline of great empires. Um, you know, it wasn't just Germany who lost World War One. It was also England and France, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. It's that those that these are empires at the height of their powers. And what happens is they they dash each other so much. Right. That there's just you know, the only one who comes out a winner is, you know, United States it comes in at the end and it's just gearing up for war, right? <laughs> So, hey guys, this, we're here. <laughs> How's this work going? Oh, yeah, we'll finish. You've up. been hanging on for a long time. We're just going to dash in on that white horse. And so, um, the worst feeling ever for everybody. It, yeah. Great and awful, you know. It really fits nicely. And I, I am also reminded of, you know, the way Orthanc looks um, with all the the muddy 
waters pouring in the floods it, mm-hmm. it there's a lot of sort of world war 1 imagery as well um a trampling under the earth you know these these um i, I noticed a lot of the grasses get trampled by the orcs <laughs> by the orcs um sure sign of uh terrible times despoilage yes well but the other thing i was thinking when i was thinking about it transition Something better has, you know, something greater, let's say, or grander has been there, and something grand may come. They don't know. They're just stuck there. And it also made me think about the fact, and this is like us, because I've heard, I think it's Dan Carlin, and I think he says this at the beginning of the World War I piece, where he says, you know, the people in this time didn't know that it was a time of transition between ages or whatever. He goes, they just knew that things weren't right and things were very unsettling and they were upset all the time. And he said, I think we're in one of those times of transition. And I loved that because it kind of really helped me bring things into focus going, yeah, I, it's okay. I mean, things aren't great and we're all kind of unsettled and unhappy, but at least I kind of felt like I knew where we fit in a way. Mm-hmm. And I was. It made me think of that conversation that's had with uh, one of the Rohirrim, where they're talking essentially about story keeps going on. Yes, and he says we're looking for the hobbits, the halflings, and uh, one of them says, "Halflings? Do we walk in legends or on the green <laughs> earth in daylight?" And Aragorn says, "A man may do both." For not we, but those who come after will make the legends of our time. The green earth, say you, that is a mighty matter of legend, though you tread it under the light of day. And then everybody's like, okay, we don't have time for this right now. <laughs> we got to go. Cut the philosophy. Yeah but-, yeah, but it was one of those moments that uh, I just read something by Chesterton also, and he was saying, you know, we forget. We think we're the end time. We think this is it. This is now. Nothing big's coming later. He goes, we forget in 100 or 200 years. They're going to look back on us like we look back on them yeah. 200 years ago. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's like people yeah. wonder, like, well, what's the demarcation between the Middle Ages and the Renaissance? Or when did the Roman Empire fall? It's not like there's a definite date where people go, okay, <laughs> wake up. Okay, we're in the Renaissance now. You know, it, it it's, a, it's a slow burn. <laughs> Well, yeah, some things are quicker, but even then, it's usually, at least back in those days, it was really localized. You might not know what was going on everywhere else. You just knew, oh my gosh, that king is gone over the hill. (laughs) (laughs) And even now, like 9-11 changed the world big time, but it took, it, and in some ways, the repercussions are still rippling out from that. So, And they will, yeah. Yeah. So it's the same thing. All right. Now, I think... Oh, back to the book. <laughs> I think uh, there's two chapters we need to talk about a bit more. Uh, one of them I'm just going to toss off right quick because I it, I remember when I was being read this story um, uh, by my uncle. Me and my sister read this story. Um, the t- chapter nine flotsam and jetsam. I don't know if I've told you guys this before, but this is where I learned what those terms mean. And me too. I don't, I don't know that really? everybody in the world knows what these terms mean, but this is where I learned them. And I, whenever these, uh, words ever come up, I have to teach all my students in the same way that I learned it. So flotsam is stuff that's floating on the water and jetsam is stuff that's floating on the water. But the difference between the two, and this is comes to 
I, I, I love how Tolkien titles these chapters because it looks <laughs> like we said, I guess, in a previous one, they look forward and backwards. So, you know, the voice of Saruman is looking forward and backwards in, in that, from that chapter. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. All of these chapters, you know, uh, the writers of the Rohirrim, um, actually, we don't meet the writers until we're actually sort of looking at the writers uh, quite late in the chapter. We're actually looking at Boromir, uh, sorry, Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli running, <laughs> right? They're not yeah. runners, not the riders, right? But, um, <laughs> Interesting. Flotsam is stuff floating on the water from a sunken ship. And jetsam is stuff floating on the water from the ship that was sinking, the people throwing things overboard so that their ship won't oh. sink. Isn't that interesting? So the yeah. Edison comes from this. You throw sure. something out, right? And that, of course, gives us the word jet as well, right? Mm-hmm. It throws out air faster than it's being sucked in. And that's, I just, I thought that that was, was wonderful. This is so precise. Tolkien English, you know, et, etymo, etymology as fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I love etymology since this book, I think, because of yep. just, you know, the chapter telling. And I was thinking, okay, well, that's fine, but where's the jetsam? Well, the jetsam is the palantir that. Is thrown out by and it's not. I don't even think it's. Is it thrown out in this chapter? Maybe it's the next chapter. Oh yeah, I think it's it is. No, it's voices. Voice yeah. yeah, so yeah. it's looking forward and backwards. And what's so funny is, unlike uh, not all of the previous books, like you know, we get to, uh, Gandalf telling us what was going on when he went. You know, he disappeared. Uh, I don't know for a month or whatever. When from between uh, Bree and. Wherever, you know, like, where's Gandalf, right? We get <laughs> Gandalf telling us that in the past. Here we get um, Merry and Pippin saying, hey, here's what happened while you haven't been reading about us, right? We get the bat. We don't get to see on stage this flooding of the, of the, um, right. Mm-hmm. Of Orthanc. We don't get to see the, the attack on, on Orthanc by the ants, what we see is the aftermath and the door ward. Instead of being Hama, here are a couple men <laughs> to put together making a full man, right? <laughs> um, well, I felt that um, the Flotsam and Jetsam, I always felt those were Pippin and Mary. Clearly, was, as well, another doubling, right? Because, yeah, it's a doubling, but, you know, they were picked up and carried along so on the flood of the orcs and by the ants and everything but at the same time sometimes that you know they were left here um and of course later like you say looking forward one of them gets goes along with the flood of aragorn left behind wherever you're going and um one of them gets actually kind of picked up mm-hmm. and flooded along with shadowfax and gandalf but also remember so. that there's two Barrels of long bottom leaf, yes, and that yes. floating in that uh, that Orthanc waters, right? And just so happens they happen to find it. Oh, and he just so happens to have <laughs> two pipes with him. Just so <laughs> yeah. Isn't it a lovely little hidden clue for the very end of the book? You know, there's a little speculation about why it's there, and then you forget all about it, and then but it's this wonderful little tiny foreshadowing. Of the very end. Yep. How'd that even get there? Why did they even, you know, that's a mystery. 
It's gonna be. I fun. was like, it made me think That's of Agatha not Christie. In the movie. That's not in the movie. So nope. yeah, says, well, yeah, he'll have fun. Wait to see what's gonna happen. No, you're right. I'm sorry, but I was just thinking. It made me think of Agatha Christie, uh-huh. where these little yeah. toss-off things that you kind of go, ha oh, ha ha, and it's just part of the background and. Sorry, Misa. That's okay. <laughs> Everybody. I she won't remember. I can't remember yeah. what I just read anyway. Yeah. Oh, thank goodness for a bad memory. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think, you know, everybody, when we talk about Helm's Deep, everybody remembers the the, the <sighs> horror of scores between yeah. Gimli. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I think I was reading somebody's criticism of Tolkien, and I thought that that was exactly right, that basically and Tolkien has no... Uh, great grasp of how military strategy works, and <laughs> I don't really care about oh. those chapters at I all. Yeah. Um, honestly, uh, I'm the only funny thing that I I found. I don't know if I t- retweeted you guys this, but I was reading a line, and I just wait. What? This is a this is a total Julie thing. <laughs> what? Wait. <laughs> um, I went back and looked, um, and I was like, I couldn't believe it. There was a line. Um, and it went something like this. Now, uh, Legolas and uh, Aragorn joined Aomer in the van. And I'm like, what? They, <laughs> like, Aomer has a vanguard, a- I guess. Uh, and I, yeah, you're right. That's exactly what it was. It's a vanguard. It's a Toyota right? Forerunner. But he doesn't start <laughs> anywhere, right? It's just, <laughs> it's like he's got a van. Oh, oh. <laughs> Superior weaponry. <laughs> No wonder they're uh, driving <laughs> so fast between these places. The, uh, the drivers, deep, though, are- there may not be any good military strategy. But how would I know? I was like one of those, you know, ladies sitting in the hall back by the fire in the medieval days, listening to somebody breathlessly tell this great essence of this story, going, "Whoa, yes. this is amazing!" All right, now. Uh, I, I don't know how much time we have, and I have something I really want to talk about, and that is the ants and the ant wives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, we all love the ants. I think we, we come to love the ants, don't we? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. I grew to love them. Yeah. You, oh. Oh, oh no! You're welcome. <laughs> uh, have you been saving that, or? <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> that was terrible. Um, <laughs> it was terribly good. <laughs> it was. All right, let's All branch right, out so, from that. Uh, <laughs> oh, no. I think we need to stay rooted in what Jesse was talking about. Oh, my about. God. <laughs> All right, going going to the... Leafing this and moving first on. Book, <laughs> the first book of The Lord of the Rings, we get a nice visit to... Fan, uh, not Fanghorn. We get the Fanghorn of the North, which is the old forest with... Old Man Willow, right? <laughs> so for me, uh, I was like, dude, there's the end wives, right? They're all up in there. And it could, because they always, you know, in the past, they would say stuff like, uh, we went into, in the old days, we would go past that hedge and we once had to burn a whole bunch of the trees down because they got really uppity. Yeah. Right. And so it's like these, these, it's, it was to me quite obvious that there was some connection to the, the Shire. Uh, and these old tree, the old forest, because the trees are alive there, or at least some of them, right? And in the Green Dragon, that first debate, I think that Sam, mm-hmm. um, Sam, and one of the Sam said, "Well, someone up in up in the old forest saw a tree walking, and mm-hmm. and if it was yeah. five feet, and it wasn't, a, if it was an inch, and then someone's like, ah, oh, probably wasn't an inch. He's probably seeing things. Ha 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 ha. Yeah. <laughs> huh. 
You know how yeah. those Tooklanders are or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> those idiots. <laughs> Fool of a Took. Yes. But um, that's not the only possibility. So what, what are your guys' theory? Because, you know, he uh, Tree, Treebeard goes on and on about the Entwives. He asks everybody he meets, hey, have you seen the Entwives? <laughs> well, what's going on with the Entwives? I miss my Entwife. Yeah. And he sings the song of the Entwives. And he also sings the Entwives part of the song, right? The back and forth between the, mm-hmm. the Ents mm-hmm. and the Entwives. And... Uh, you know, some of the criticism I was reading or, you know, online stuff about it was saying, you know, this is us empathizing with the ants. And it totally does. I mean, these tree guys, they're, they're much more interesting than, uh, I like them a lot more than elves. <laughs> Sorry, but oh, yeah. elves are kind of boring. Um, they have nice houses. They live in beautiful forests, but. They're, well, they're perfect. Perfect yeah. is not as yeah. interesting as the flawed nature of the ants. And you see some of that because they're talking about, you know, it's like they're two parts of a whole. There's the part that's gardening and doing this stuff, which mm-hmm. is the ant wives. And there's the part that's just let's live free with the wild trees. But and so you feel one of the things that hit me about. Um, oh, how could I not remember his name? Treebeard, where they said he looked sad, but not unhappy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I thought, what an interesting way to put it. Mm-hmm. You know, are we coming to an end? I don't know. We'll do what we need to do. But I wish I could have seen the Entwives again. And it's this deep. I think I don't know. We can empathize with that. There's a there's a line that I I was really struck by a number of times. It came up in these two, uh, in this section, and I think it had come up in the previous two books we had done as well. Um, and that I think. Fanghorn, yeah, uh, Treebeard, he's got a bunch of names, as mm-hmm. everybody has a bunch of names. Um, he said in his story to Pippin and Mary that the elves had talked the trees into, uh, talked the ants into wakefulness. Yeah, they gave and, them words, right? Taught them yes. how to talk, yeah. Right. Um, and the, some of the trees were become, were becoming very tree-like and some of the trees were becoming ant-like mm-hmm. um, but I just thought it was really interesting that um, that the ants were asleep is actually the word that was used to describe their pre-speech existence and mm-hmm. and then I noticed that um, Shadowfax's father, although Shadowfax is not apparently this, but Shadowfax's sire was apparently able to understand the speech of men. I thought that was really interesting. Oh, I didn't, I didn't even that. notice that. Yeah, that's that was a, another one. I, you know, I'm <laughs> whenever I read a book, it's like sleep and dreams and being awakeful uh, is sort of the things I latch mm-hmm. on to. But um, also, there was a a line about humans not being. This is a time before humans were awake somewhere in here, mm-hmm. and. Uh, you know that before men had woken is yeah. the, is the line, and I thought, yeah, that's that's really it's like it's almost like you know some deep way back in our ancestry as human beings, we were pre speech, mm-hmm. as you know so many animals around us are. But um, I was you know in the subsequent time since we've all had a chat, I've had opportunity to uh read and 
see the videos of Coco, you know, the gorilla that oh yeah, the sign language, and uh, sh- her she's not a particularly deep converser, but she's definitely got <laughs> she, you know she's not doing I love Coco yeah she's not doing deep philosophy, but she's definitely got opinions and jokes and great <laughs> humor and strong she desires. Loved her kitten. Yeah. Yeah. And she, you know, she loved making the same kind of jokes, you know, word jokes and (laughs) uh, language uh, style jokes that humans do, but Mm -hmm. also a lot of pathos that is inexpressible in language. Other, you know, if you're, if you haven't been somehow woken by humans, in this case, uplifted, I guess is the the term that uh, David Brin would use or, um, there's some much more frightening term, I'm sure, from H.G. Wells' The Island of Dr. Moreau. <laughs> but I just thought I thought it was interesting that um, it's as if all of these, you know, intelligent races of Middle Earth were somehow there always and just woken from their slumbers. And sometimes they can go back to sleep. Yeah, like some of the ants that are becoming almost tree-like. Mm-hmm. And they don't rouse so- themselves. The fact that the ant wives are are gone is a is a mystery that seems unsolved, right? No, mm-hmm. this is something that we never are fully resolved with. Just you know, later on, it we don't say, "Oh, and they went over there," right? Yeah. However, um, I was thinking, you know, that is it's kind of unusual because most of the time when we've got some mystery in. In the book, right? It comes, you know, who is this Strider? We find that out. Right? Um, and I, I thought a bit more about this in that the Rangers, you know, the if you played Dungeons and Dragons at all, you would know that Rangers are a class, right? Um, and they are the trackers, they're the detectives of, you know, they're just like, you know, the Texas Rangers, you guys. <laughs> Chuck Norris. They, <laughs> Got to track down their man, and that's what Aragorn's doing with Legolas and Gimli, right? They're they're tracking the the uh, the kidnappers. Right, they're following the trail. They can't go. There's a big debate one night. You know, should we sleep because we can't <laughs> yeah. see the road anymore? Mm-hmm. But if we miss the, some turn in the path, we'll we'll spend the rest of the day, you know, backtracking trying to find their path. And he tracked the Gollum all the way to Mordor too. Oh yeah, that's yeah. Right. Made me think of. Uh, Zed, there's a story by Voltaire uh, called Zadig, and it it is the uh, it's the origin of modern detective stories. It, you know, comes prior to comes prior oh. to uh, Edgar Allan Poe's See uh, Auguste Dupin. Yeah, Rue Morgue. And it's a story about a guy who accidentally becomes a detective just because his skill at, at looking at nature is so good. He accidentally becomes a detective. It costs him. It's kind of a joke story. It costs mm-hmm. him a lot of time because he identifies a, a missing horse and a missing dog and where they went, and what happened to them. <laughs> um, it just made me think, it started make, making me think of detective, detective work um, that, you know, the ranger and uh, the elf and the dwarf are all doing. Yeah. And that made me think of, okay, now we've got the detective mode going. Well, what happened to the Entwives? This is a serious mystery. It's never resolved. And so I did some searching, and I found that <laughs> some people on the internet claim that, that wow. 
that there are answers to these. It must be true. So please. Um, and <laughs> there's one guy who's written a on the Tolkien Society blog. He's written in February 2015. Uh, Can you truly find the Entwives in the Lord of the Rings? And he's written an essay saying, "Okay, I think I, I think Sauron killed them all." Um, which he didn't <laughs> back up with any particular <laughs> evidence. But he said, you know, there's some guy on the internet who claims that he knows where it is and that he, using the pseudonym Teleporno again, remember that one? <laughs> Bouch, bow, bow. <laughs> Which is one of the Celeborn's ancestors or whatever. <laughs> and so if you follow the thread, the person claims... Um, Teleporno claims, I found the Entwives. He has proof, he or she has proof that other people are now claiming that they also have found this evidence and that Tolkien has placed it in there for us to find. However, it's in the, what is it? it's in the yeah. next book. What teasing me? Oh. You don't know. Well, it doesn't because, say. Because Tolkien, and of course he might not have been telling the whole truth, but these letters get pretty long and in his letters i'm gonna have to look yeah he 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 is he is a bit obtuse about it right yeah but he said i thought i came away with the the information i could have misinterpreted i guess that he just said you never find the ant wives they're gone right like i don't know where they are but they're not here well i don't think they find them again is what i'm saying we need to be on the lookout in the next book because I I don't know if it's there. There are co- lots of quotes in this thread, and people are saying, you know, some people are claiming that it's there, and I think it might be there. In part two of this book, this yes, is where we're looking. In the next section, so starting okay. in. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so the naming of Smeagol. Some are in between here, and <laughs> the end of that, we're going to find. So we are all trackers now. That's right. They're like rangers. We're the rangers. Us with Aragorn. Except remember, this next book is going to be, uh, we're going to be hanging out not with Pippin and Merry and, you know, Aragorn and all them. We're going to be hanging out with Sam and Frodo. And they don't know about the Entwives. So our job is to use what what they see and what they tell us. To try and see if that's evidence. Eyes open. You mission impossible theme. Well, so can can I? I don't know what time we have, but I think there's one thing I would love to talk about, or at least just bring up, which is this book. Although it starts off with Aragorn and everybody, it's partly their book, but a huge part of it is Mary and Pippin's book. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that I love about this continually made that, you know, well, it's not made that uh, at the point of, you know, they were just let in because Gandalf went, I just have this feeling that friendship matters more than smarts and strength. So let's let him be part of the fellowship. Well, and at one point when they're being kidnapped, Mary says, you know, I feel like all we've done is get in the way. And here we are getting in the way again. People are going to have to come track us. This is the worst. Plus, I hate this. But what you what gets pointed out from this point on is without them, so many things wouldn't have happened that needed to happen. As um, Gandalf says, they're the pebbles that began the avalanche of the Ents 
rising. Mm -hmm. They are following them as fast as they did is what gets Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli to where they meet Gandalf when he's Mm -hmm. resurrected. I I did the calculation, by the way. They went 220 kilometers uh, in four days, which is a lot of running. Especially for those short legs of the dwarf. Yeah. Dwarf legs, come on. <laughs> well, and but and it even goes on though to the fact that when the Palantir throne and Pippin picks it up and later he looks into it and gets caught, yeah. Gandalf says, you know, I'm glad he did that because I wouldn't have been prepared and I would have given up a lot more. Mm-hmm. Probably. I wanna I wanna talk about that yeah. FaceTime with Sauron because I think that <laughs> but, that well, yeah, but I was just but the whole idea of, I think this, you know, this is another one of those big themes of um, Tolkien's, which is even the smallest individual makes a huge, can make a huge difference when you're seeing the tapestry properly, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. threads that are woven through it. And, you know, we kind of think of Mary and Pippin as being small and in- insignificant. And as it goes on, of course, they, they have more roles, although very small, they still make a huge difference. And I, but I love the fact that just by getting kidnapped, oh, and... Possibly most important, and the first thing that Gandalf says is they basically are the reason that Boromir is, what was the word, redeemed? Mm-hmm. Yes. Because he selflessly fought for them to the very end to try to save them, and that's, that was his salvation. Yeah, that's yeah. interesting because that's that scene is also not shown, right? That's like that the, the flooding of Isengard. That scene with Boromir is recounted, but it is not right. shown. Mm-hmm. And in fact, that's where the detective work starts. Um, mm-hmm. Remember, uh, they come across the body of Boromir. There are many dead bodies of orcs, like tw- I think it was 20 dead orcs around him. Right? And his body's filled with, yeah, with black feathers. Yeah. Uh-huh. So does that mean that those, uh, those black uh, swans were the... <laughs> oh, God. Swans <laughs> <Those> feathers, right? <laughs> and um, I I went through my um, Middle Earth role playing game uh, guidebooks, which are like a they're like they take the text of the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit and the Silmarillion, and then you know expand those out into massively uh, <laughs> uh, massive you know fan fiction sort of works, but very scholarly. And one of the things that I uh, one of the books that I found there was the it was like the creatures of Middle Earth. Mm-hmm. amongst them uh, there's not very many uh, mammals, there's a lot of birds bitterns up in Hobbiton area and and then there was a specific area marked out for black swans and of course it's right, <laughs> over, the, just right over the area where we had traveled and where Boromir died but yeah so we we don't know that those those black swans are working for the enemy but certainly birds were playing a huge role in the previous uh adventure we get a a flashback to that uh in Gandalf saying you know how he got out of his death um <laughs> which I'm still not sure about but uh there was some eagle involved there as well right <laughs> Always yeah. the same guy carrying him around. Yeah. Come yeah. Back. And they see the eagle when they're, um, you know, running in pursuit of Marion Pippin. Um, I know, I Legolas, love that. Legolas sees the eagle. Yeah. I was, um, I was reminded I was reading uh, The Tempest by Shakespeare. And I was reminded, you know, Ar- Ariel does all the work for uh, mm-hmm. Prospero. All of the work. 
<laughs> and you know Ariel's the air spirit. You know, th- makes all the sh- the ships crash. You know, makes people come ashore. Basically, does is all of the magic in is done through Ariel. And it was like every time Gandalf needs some, you know, to escape some horrible fate. Oh, here comes the eagle. <laughs> so many times already That's and true. it's going to happen more right yeah uh, but on the other hand we do finally we get some gandalf magic right in in the voice of saruman chapter he, oh man he that explodes was so good. Stuff, right what else does he do well he calls he calls um Saruman back, which you know you could argue whether that's right. magic yeah. or, or his own voice on him, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean even the whole idea of the voice there's there's a gray area whether that's magic or just you know the charisma stat that he rolled when when uh, when he was being created. <laughs> Persuasiveness. It reminded me of the voice in Dune. You guys all read Dune? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I don't remember. Oh the right. Voice. The, right. Uh, Mice, have you read Dune? No, I haven't. Well, I think we're gonna have to do a follow up now. Oh no! That would be a great book. <laughs> I'll do Dune. I know. I'll How that. long is Dune? <laughs> it's, pretty long. It's, it's super it's like long. The thickness of the Return of the King, or so. Oh, okay. It's quite long, but it's really good. Um, but in that, uh, they're trained with the voice, which you know is the voice of command and can make you do stuff. Uh, that but right after he calls him back, he does say. I'm now the master of the council. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So basically, yes. he, he, you're the implication is he does have a power over him that it, whether it's it, it has to be magical, I assume, and because he's the master, he can call them in. Mm-hmm. Um, he also says, and, "I am Saruman," or as Saruman should have been. Right. Yeah, he's, yeah. he claims the white mm-hmm. instead mm-hmm. of just the the Gandalf the Grey. How many on, are on this council? We've got. Radagast the Brown, we've got Saruman the White, we've got Gandalf the Grey, and then Gandalf there's, the White. There's Is two, there any more? There's two. He said a uh, council of five wizards. I think there are two blue wizards. I don't even know what that means, and I don't think we ever meet them. Sure they, they're the really sweary ones. Yeah, I'm sure it's in the lore somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> that was my... my rejoinder to Mises. <laughs> Thank you. Well, and the other interesting thing about the voice of Saruman chapter is, you know, you see Saruman being very influential and had the effect it has on everyone. And Gandalf doesn't even bother trying to sound influential to everyone. He's just talking to Saruman. And what you see too, though, is the only thing Saruman has is this power of persuasion. Whereas what Gandalf uses is the truth and freedom, which is so interesting. He's like, I'll let you go free. And they went, what do you mean by that? And he's like, whatever. He can leave. He can stay. He can help us be great. And he does the same thing to Grimma Mm -hmm. earlier. Mm -hmm. He's like, you're free. Did did you notice how many times choice was was in this book? This was like a book of, it started out with choices. Oh, gosh, yeah. From before when Boromir... For, like it started with the departure of Boromir, but Boromir's choice with the ring sort of set the tone for this whole thing. It, like immediately, mm-hmm. um, they they have to choose where they where they're going to which path they're going to take. And Aragon, fraught, like he frets over his choices so many times. Do we go here? Do we go there? And um, and it keeps coming. Choices. Let me make good ones now. Yeah, all the yeah. way through. And then at, at one point, Gandalf says, you don't regret the choice. You made the right choice because 
you know, now we're being rewarded. Everything is, is going the way it's supposed to go. And then we come to like towards the end of it, we finally hit King Theoden where, where Gandalf, where, or, well, Theoden tells him to let Wormtongue make his choice, go to Sar go to Sar Saruman or Sar Saruman or don't stay with us. And then, and then finally at the end, this, the last one is to Saruman. You can, um, you can renounce both Mordor and the private schemes and make amends by helping us. And it, and it seems like, like a, a whole choice is, it's like an overriding theme about, okay, now it's your choice to us, the reader. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, don't you think that, uh, you know, it's not a mistake though, in the case of Saruman. I mean, especially knowing what we know uh, later on. I don't think my son knows it though. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, but you know, that. but that's the thing. You could say that about Grimma, and look what happens. If you hadn't let him go and he hadn't gone to Saruman, he wouldn't have had his moment of spite and thrown the Palantir out. But it's and not like that Palantir is hugely important. But it's not also like they're saying, um, you know, come come down from your tower and we'll put you in a, the prison camp until the end of the war. They're saying, you know, you can come out of your tower, and if you want to join us, you can. And if you don't, go oh, okay. You just have to give up your key. Right. Well, you know what? The bad way is the way that persuades you to do the wrong thing. Because they point out the reason Saruman became what he was is he thought he was making the right choice, but he was being lured into the wrong things. He was never given his choice of freedom. That's what leads you down the wrong path. The right path is we're going to show you all the things you choose because – Tolkien is always on the side of free will, and that's what those choices show. Mm -hmm. hmm. Aragorn could have gone after, and he could have said, "I said I wouldn't leave Bilbo." Done. Yeah. Or I mean, Frodo. Frodo. That was, and, and that was interesting too. Didn't you think that they didn't even yeah. touch Frodo until you know, like he didn't follow Frodo, and we didn't even hear from Frodo for this whole book. Mm -hmm. yeah. So at the beginning, you go, "What? You're not going to help Frodo?" Well. <laughs> And he's like, but I can't leave Merry and Pippin. And so it's that, do I go big picture or do I go person to person with, I know what will happen to these two. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of also the the choices that get made that are big picture, like Saruman going, we could rule the world. And Gandalf going, yeah, well, that's what you say, but it'll be you versus me. We know how that goes. <laughs> Only one person wears the ring. And so when you take it down to that individual level is where you see how the choices really get worked out. It's, yeah, it's, it's really interesting, isn't it? Watching mm -hmm. what he does with it. Mm -hmm. uh, let's talk about the Palantir because this is, is it kind of like an iPhone. You can do FaceTime with anyone Into else. your head. Yeah. <laughs> Um, they there, could read your thoughts. I was reading a little bit about it. There's like eight of them or something like that. There's a whole bunch of them. But mm -hmm. obviously one of them is in Minus Morgul or wherever uh, Sauron's hanging out. Um, and when Pippin does the it's a FaceTime with, <laughs> with Sauron, uh, it kind of reminded me of, you know, what happens when uh, Frodo puts on the ring, right? He's, he's doing a kind yeah. of uh, just regular telephone with with Sauron or whatever. Um, this is one of those old, powerful, magical items. Can't be destroyed except by uh, throwing it into something. Yeah. There's Volcano in Middle Earth, which is happens to be in Mordor. But it doesn't, it, it, it's not necessarily like an evil device, right? It's, it's just like a telephone. Or yeah. A, yeah. It's, yeah it's, didn't it just uh, a communication thing? Like to mm. keep everybody. Mm -hmm. 
in touch. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like any technology. It's not inherently good or evil. It's you know how it's used. And there there are seven of them because there's Gandalf is singing that song at the end of seven stars and seven stones and one white tree. Oh yeah, and the seven yeah. stones are the are the Palantir. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So it's a it's a kind of a cool technology not made by humans or whatever. It's magic. But yeah, it's some sort of elf. Uh, Aragorn claims it right um, at the end of this book, saying, "You know, this is part of the Elendil's stash or whatever." Yeah, mm-hmm. and that I guess Orthanc was built by the Dunedain or something a long time ago, um, which is fine. <laughs> but uh, I just thought it was like. It's kind of an interesting device because if you do have, you know, these armies on the move, uh, you want to do that. But on the other hand, it's like the red phone, right? From the president's <laughs> office. <to> yeah. Rush. <laughs> yeah. Pick up the red phone and you're talking to Stalin and he's saying, I'm going to move my tanks into Ukraine. <laughs> or whatever. Not Wait, no! <laughs> But if the yeah. if if the red phone is is in all of the countries and not just between you know Russia and uh, and the United States, um, I don't think everybody would want to have like I don't think the U.S. would want you know Brazil to have its own red phone. I mean, they probably now everybody can communicate really well and very easily uh, between countries. But I um, I'm reading this book that I'm going to be on uh, a show. About uh, reading envy, not too. Oh right, far right. Now, um, I'm reading a book called The Victorian Internet, uh, which is about uh, yeah. telegraphy. And um, when they laid the first transatlantic cable between Europe and the United States, or North America, anyways, um, they were like, they thought this was the greatest thing. This is like, this is their moonshot for you know mm-hmm. 19th century and they it was the greatest thing ever right because now international peace was assured i know <laughs> we'll like, all talk hmm, to each other sure. yeah, if we could just get enough if we could <sighs> just get putin on the phone all our problems would be solved <laughs> we could just talk to hitler oh, nice. talk to oh i know instead yeah. the and, and then is, be able to telecommute tell a uh brain to brain with them too right that's right yeah, but it is video too, right? He gets to see as, mm-hmm. as uh, here, so I, I I think it's a very interesting technology, and I I don't remember, I don't think we ever get this again. I in the movie doesn't doesn't uh, Bor no not Aragorn use it or something. He does, and I think yeah. he does in the book, and that's one of my yeah he does qualms with he the, does. the movies in general. Just just have trouble with this stuff. Like when he uses it in the movie, he holds the sword up to it, and it's this very dramatic right. gesture it's one of these lazy things like um the way they, they sword at you the, the way guy they deal with them <laughs> the way they deal with saruman and with theoden in the in the movies is also lazy in, in a similar way yeah. they, they they don't take the trouble to show that okay saruman has this very complex mental influence on theoden via worm tongue instead it's just possession and gandalf waves his staff and and you see saruman and in, in orthanc kind of fly back when he does that and Mm. And so it's like this astral astral possession sort of thing. It's just you know, it's one of the things that movies <laughs> yeah, it's just like doesn't the, do well. It's like the fight between Gandalf and Saruman too at the in the first part. And I'm like, really, that's the stupidest thing I ever saw. Two old men throwing each other around. I don't care if it's by <laughs> magic or not. You know, you couldn't do better than that. Yeah. 
But they do, yeah, it comes up later and it's a very powerful moment. And, um, well, and I, because the Palantir, I felt like this was from when this united before. Yeah. And so they just mm-hmm. went, well, we need one in, you know, like, say, if mm-hmm. best, because that's what I can think of. We this go and one in Chicago and one mm-hmm. in New York and one in, you know, somewhere in the South, New Orleans. But are they, two, are they two way or one way? Like, because Gandalf said if I had picked it up, he would have known what was going on but could he uh, at the same time know what's going on uh, on the yeah i think that's right is it, if he it, had the power like, next time you you can show it shows you what's going on in both ends yeah. right if he had the power but he wouldn't have been prepared is what he said so he would have been, been prepared what's interesting though is is that you know like julie you're saying you know this all of this this whole book is the sideshow for the actual plunge into mordor right Mm-hmm. Um, it it it's in, I think it's actually much more interesting than yeah. than the plunge into Mordor, unfortunately. But um, it is it you know the uh, soft underbelly of Europe is is actually you know, <laughs> whatever. The the important part here is um, that we've got the Pippin is Frodo to Sauron. He doesn't know what what Frodo looks like. He doesn't know Frodo's right. name. Ex- yeah, well, right. If he knows, he thinks that Pippin is Frodo, right? right. So yeah. he's going to focus on the wrong area, which mm-hmm. is which is it's like the uh, if you've seen that movie from I don't know the sixties or something. It's called The Man Who Never Was. You guys know this movie? Uh, no. It's Mm-mm. about one of the they did. You know those British spies? They were really good during World War Two. They they, oh yes, they took my a, husband and oh. read the book about him or something. You, Go ahead. You explain it. Well, it's basically that they were trying to mislead people, uh, the bad guys, the Nazis, and uh, so yeah, the Nazis always the bad guys, and especially for real. And so what they did is they took a body and they planted stuff on it and then kind of released it as if it was you know from a shipwreck. And so all these misleading papers were on it and. And I mean, I don't think I did a better job of describing it than you would have, but, well, but it, yeah, I got pulled yeah, short. So what and happened was to- there was, there was a guy in England who died of, uh, uh, what's pneumonia. Um, and he was, um, older, um, and they, they were looking for this guy. They didn't know exactly who it would be, but they were looking for a body, somebody who had died of a certain thing that would look like drowning and oh, then they it, yeah. put him in it. They tailored a uniform for him. They wrote a letters to and from his lover. Um, you know, it, they had to keep him, him fresh enough while they everything. were doing all this. Yeah. Created a whole life for him that wasn't his life. And then put him in a uniform of a major or something who, and a, and a parachute and then dropped him off of the coast of, I think it was France or Spain. Spain and is where he wound up. In his bags were the plans for Operation Overlord, except <laughs> they weren't exactly right. Right, <laughs> to be on the wrong day, and apparently this did get into Hitler's hands, and he thought, "Oh yes, this is it." And so he moved a bunch of soldiers away from Normandy. Mm-hmm. So, uh, this so is this a true thing or yes, a true fiction? Story. Oh no, it's real. Oh, wow, it's for real. Yeah, those, that's how the British won the war. Is not by having more military, just by being much trickier with their computers and their spies <laughs> and all that. Well, I think it's. I think they were. All, I think it's like this book. They were all components. 
Yes. One thing doesn't work without the other. That's right. Mm. You can't. You, um, you can't not invade. <laughs> just, right, you have to invade. Or, 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 the um, yeah, because they were tricky about all that stuff. Like they had the whole group of movie people that, and that may have been the U.S., but it may have been British also. I can't remember who would go around and they would set up things that from the air would look like yeah, it was a certain number of tanks. troops and they weren't actually there at all, but they were trying to lure people away. So the real troops could get through a tricky spot that had been guarded heavily. And mm-hmm. this is kind of classic, I guess. But the thing is about this book, when you said, you know, the the ones about Frodo and Sam tend to be not quite as exciting. And it's funny because it's, again, it might, it must be that doubling because all the points that are being made in this book, you see a lot of it reinforced by what's going on with Sam and Frodo, mm. but it's much more personal and internal realization on their part because they're not all the big action scenes going on. Mm-hmm. They're slogging through. And so it's kind of a, it's an interesting back and forth situation. Indeed. Which is disappointing if after the first book, this is what kept me having trouble with it. I was like, no, I want everybody together. I don't want you guys to break up. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's the breaking of the fellowship. It goes back to what Jesse said about <laughs> chapters looking backwards and forwards. The last the last uh, chapter of the book two was the breaking of the fellowship. And mm-hmm. now we see the consequences of that being borne out. But there's a little bit of a reun- reuniting, although I think it's not going to last, right? Well, yeah, but it's just it's because it changes the tone of what's going on, and you don't expect it because, you know, you're used to the fellowship. We're going to support each other. And it's great. Well, that was one of the problems I had with the last Harry Potter book. And, well, I didn't see the movies, but the... <laughs> Which went on forever. The, um, the first six books really followed this f- format of, of being set in Hogwarts, and you're really used to the dynamics. You know, something, an inciting incident happens at the beginning of term. Something happens in Halloween. Christmas is kind of a long <laughs> right. Easter, there's a climax, and then it kind of builds towards the end. And the seventh book, it was good, and I see I've, people have made good arguments for why it needed to happen, but it totally made made me wrong-footed reading it because it completely broke that dynamic that i mean at least with this you know we only have the fellowship for a book or so <laughs> harry potter was like six years and all of a sudden I'm like wait what's what's happening here? that's right that's right wait they spent how many months in that tent ah oh, yes <laughs> talk about slowing down at a bad yeah. bad point yeah i but but the last book was amazing, and it did do what it needed to do. But, yeah, it totally broke your expectations of what was going on. And it's funny because when this breaks it, that's a good point. What happens is from here on, that's kind of what happens is you've got so many people dealing with such a broad scale of places geographically and everything that you have to follow different breaking them up again at the end. You've got Gandalf and Pippin going off one way, Mary's with Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli going off in another direction. So what happens the next time we see them? They have to split up the story again. I think we should end with... Oh, I have something. So, I, have, I oh, wanted to ask you something. It, um, I wanted to see if you noticed when Gandalf's resurrection. Mm-hmm. So he falls down with the, Bal- with the Balrog forever with fire. And then water. And where they go to the <laughs> bottom of Middle Earth. And then they climb. And then he follows the slime up the mountain. And then the bird takes him away up into the air. Mm-hmm. So we've got f- the four elements 
Yep, the fire. Oh, 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 oh you right? really do. That's and right. So, wow. So <laughs> I, I googled uh, the classical elements. So in Wikipedia, it says um, elements believed to reflect the simplest essential parts of and principles of which anything can consist, or upon which the constitution and fundamental powers of everything are based. Sounds right. And you've got the fire and the Balrog, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. So that's wow. just the basis for um, Gandalf's newfound, seemingly kind of limitless power, and it is limited. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So grounded in all the well, elements. Yeah, and on a, a more human level, they uh, toward the end of this book, they point out, well, you know, he's different. He's more thoughtful. He's a bit more human in a way. And then he starts telling Pippin, all this stuff that he never would have let go of all that information before. So um, it, that's not maybe that's getting back to the more elemental way that Gandalf should have been. Maybe that's kind of an interesting idea. Also, the Lovecraftian stuff that's hanging out down in the bottom there. I was like, did everybody see the mm-hmm. eldritch horrors that are down there? Just it's not sense. the earth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Things gnawing at the bottom of the <laughs> earth, and I guess yeah. that's like. <laughs> Is that that Norse worm that's yeah, there? Yeah, it gnaws at the bottom of the world that. tree, yeah. Yeah, that was just a lovely bit of creepy, kind of like the, oh, what is it that was in the first book? The, the tentacle. Barrows oh, and the tentacles, mm. and yeah, the tentacles from the lake and the Dwight's and Barrows and all that kind of thing. Whites and Barrows, I guess. <laughs> Dwight. <laughs> Dwight. <laughs> the guy from The Office. <laughs> the Office. I know. I'm sorry. Did he have tentacles and we just didn't see them? Hey, I'm Frodo. not sure. <laughs> <laughs> trying to find the – what's the thing that that um, Treebeard always says? is whom, whom, whom now. Don't be hasty. <laughs> And one lovely moment, since we're mentioning things like that, or I am anyway, is I love when he's going through the woods and they're heading off toward the end of the time of the ants before they get to Isengard. And he's homing to himself and everything. And and a couple of the trees kind of make noises back at him. And he ignores them. And so then they just don't say anything anymore. And it's like the <laughs> shepherd going through his sheep. They're like, hey. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know. I just thought that's a lovely sentence. That somebody would have wanted to cut out yeah, that, that right there. I'm walking around. I'm like, but it just emphasized that relationship. It was beautiful. Here, I'm going to read that. It says, they had been going for a long while. Pippin and Mary had fell asleep while he's on this walk, right? Uh, Pippin had tried to keep count of the Ent strides, but it failed, getting lost at about 3,000. When Treebeard began to slacken his pace, suddenly he stopped, put the hobbits down, and raised his curled hands to his mouth so that they made a hollow tube. Then he blew or called through them. A great whom, home, rang out like a deep-throated horn in the woods and seemed to echo from the trees. Far off there came from several directions a similar whom, home, whom. That was not an echo, but an answer. This is a different spot. This is one sentence of him, and now I took my marker out, and I wish I hadn't. This is him walking toward Isengard before all that I mean, after all that stuff, and he just kind of, he's like, it's like he's like singing to himself or something. Hmm. There's another one and, similar. Uh, it says, uh, he says, Treebeard did not talk to them. Thoughtfully, but Mary and Pippin caught no proper words. It sounded like boom, boom, rum, boom, borar, boom, boom, dahar, boom, boom, dahar, boom, and so on. 
it's it, it, just hmm, oh, hmm, you know. Yeah, but it. I wish I I wish I had um, left the marker in because let's see, find it. Um, but yeah, he was just walking along and he's just kind of going hmm, hmm, hmm to himself, and a couple of the trees kind of go hmm, <laughs> and he doesn't pay any attention and just oh, okay, it's just kind of a little moment. I love the way that Ents name things. It got me thinking about that whole idea of, like, um, that philosophical complex concept of the map is not the territory, where a name is kind of representative of something, but the name is not the thing. Um, except to Ents, it sort of is. Like, the real name of something tells its whole story. Mm-hmm. And so I love that. Treebeard's like, well, yes. my name's growing all the time, because I'm, I'm growing mm-hmm. all the time. Yeah. It, it's, it's funny, because... the. They have eyes, right? They they have skin, yeah. but they're trees, kind of. Uh, but they're not exactly trees. I mean, uh, the, uh, he he has a bed, but he doesn't sleep on his bed. He stands to sleep. Right? Mm-hmm. What's the bed for? Lying down, <laughs> so the drink doesn't go to his head. And he, yeah, that's right. That's <laughs> right. And then the uh, the the hobbits have to sit on the table because they don't have any chairs. But um, the fact that he has bowls that are you know, reasonably sized for hobbits is, is kind of funny too. Yeah, little tiny bowls. Yeah. It's his thimble. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I did find this now. I don't okay. know. Treebeard did not talk to them, and it's the thing you're saying where Mary and Pippin caught no proper words, Dahara, boom, and so on with a constant change of note and rhythm. Now and again, they thought they heard an answer that seemed to come out of the earth or from boughs above their head or perhaps from the boles of the trees. But Treebeard did not stop or turn his head to either side. And I guess because they thought the boughs or the boles of the trees, I thought that was the trees kind of answering him. Yeah, he's telling you something, yeah. right? Yeah, it's, you know, them going, like you said, bah. <laughs> <laughs> so... And at this point, we thought we were finished discussing the book, but turns out we weren't quite done. So here's a little more of our post-recording discussion. Yeah, the reason that he put those trees in there was because he was so disappointed over Macbeth, and he thought the trees would really do it. And he's like, people with branches, are you kidding me? <laughs> That's so lame, yeah. <laughs> That's the worst thing ever. Well, yeah, I but I think I think it's fun that he, yeah, he's sort of... Yeah. The thing is, is he redeemed you it. know, unlike... Um, I don't know of any other fantasy book where he takes a character, I don't know, a writer takes a non-existent group of things and turns it into a thing that's so... I mean, elves, we had those before this book. We had orcs, no, not orcs, goblins before this book. We had, um, you know, dwarves before this book. We didn't have hobbits before uh, The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. Exactly. The, the, the word is there, but, you know, it's not these creatures. We had dragons before. We didn't have ants. They're a new thing. They're and, completely new. And yeah. nobody seems to have picked up on it and said, you know, ants, 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 ants. Um, and maybe that's because he just sort of did it so definitively there's nothing left to say. I don't know. Because yeah. elves, you know, I haven't seen elves done better anywhere. Mm-hmm. No. They're always pale shadows of whatever elf you know, stuff we see in here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'm not, I, I, I'm just curious as to what, how the ants sort of 
you know, they're not in Dungeons and Dragons. And I'm not sure what you would do with them other than you know, go up and hew on their leg with a mm-hmm. with an axe or whatever. Not sure. And I think and you guys may all know this already, but I think I remember reading that he based the way they talked on C. S. Lewis. Ah. And- People who, took Lewis's, mm-hmm. yeah, people who took really? Lewis's classes. Yeah, he would talk in that kind of long-winded way. <laughs> <laughs> and so he loved the ants, and so he gave them his friend's name, or, you know, voice, in a sense, which I thought was really great because they're so thoughtful and everything. It just works so well, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because you need something to kind of slow things down and think about it a little bit sometimes, too. And, and the fact that they're so foreign the way they think about it. You know, I love that in the book, they did not do what they did in the movie, where in the movie they're like, well, you have to hurry up. Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. And so it makes the ants seem too slow, whereas here they're just sitting around going, well, I wonder when they'll get done. Okay, whenever. <laughs> we don't know. We're in charge of nothing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, that, he says that. We don't, we don't take sides. No one takes our side. Yeah. We don't take their sides. Right. And Sauron says, shall never be vanquished until Fanghorn would... To Isengard shall come against him. That's oh, is that yeah, the that's, line? That's basically yeah, paraphrasing. Yeah. Paraphrasing. Dunsany, what is it? Dunson something wood. Dunsane wood. Yeah, wood. yeah. That's from Macbeth. Except it's yeah. Macbeth shall never be vanquished, and it shall never vanquished be until uh, Dunsane wood to whatever place Bur- Burnham or something. Yeah, yeah I think so. shall come yeah. against him. Yeah, which is brilliant. That's fun. It is brilliant. It. And I love the way that they fought where they could just like stick their toes into the stone and yeah. pull it down just like a very like fast a moving tread roots. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The way it would naturally work. And I thought, you know, he must have really thought about this. And I know he loved trees, so it must have been a real joy to develop these characters. Definitely. I mean, it yeah. makes you want to go hang out in the woods, right? Yep. I don't know. Um, and you can you can really kind of see Tolkien's playful side, even though they aren't really playful characters. But you can imagine him having a lot of fun, taking some delight in that yeah. sub-creation that he does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.